0: From beautiful downtown Milheim, in the smack dab center of the Keystone State, this is Lou Bryson, with Seen Through a Glass, the podcast that's mostly about drinking in central Pennsylvania. Welcome to episode 13, Pennsylvania Cider. I wasn't planning to do a cider episode till the apple harvest this fall, but I found myself at a York County cidery recently, and one thing led to another, so here we are, doing cider as the apple trees are just in bloom. Call it spontaneity. Before we get to the Applely goodness of cider, though, there are some temporary changes coming to the podcast and to my life, and I wanted to let you know what to expect. We're doing major renovations to our house, starting in late May, and by major I mean they're tearing off the back of the house and rebuilding it kind of renovations. We're going to be out of the house for about six months, if everything goes to plan. That's a big if, but our contractor has done pretty well with schedules before, so I've got my fingers crossed. That's the change for me. How does that affect seeing through a glass and your listening experience? Well, for one thing, I don't know what the sound quality is going to be like, as I'll be recording wherever we happen to be in the best situation I can find. Hell, it might be better, because what I'm using now is hardly ideal. But much more than that, I'm going to be doing some episodes far afield from central Pennsylvania. We'll mostly be staying at our daughter's place in Belfont, which won't change much, But we'll also be staying with friends and family in various places for those six months. Our son in Philadelphia, and you'll get a small taste of that at the end of this episode. And friends in Bucks County, my brother-in-law in upstate New York, and my wife's youngest brother in western North Carolina. We might be in Colorado and Toronto as well. So it's going to be stag on the road starting in June. Should be fun. And when we move back in, we're going to have a new kitchen for cooking, and a bar for some roundtable tasting sessions, and I'll have a detached office with a recording studio, a mic boom, sound insulation, consistent settings, all the stuff to make a real improvement in audio quality. Something to look forward to. Now, cider. Hey, that's a really good idea, because that's what I'm drinking today. What I'm drinking today is Big Hill Cider Works Little Round Hop. It's a hopped hard cider. Big Hill is in Adams County. It's about halfway between Carlisle and Gettysburg, uh, right in the heart of apple country. And I first had Big Hill actually at a brew pub down outside of Philadelphia at Sterling Pig Brew Pub. Uh, They had uh, Big Hill on tap, and I sat down and had one with the brewmaster there, Brian McConnell, loved it wanted to get more and this kind of fell into my hands maybe not what I would have looked for for a cider uh, with with a hopped cider but let's take a shot at this this has the classic 3 Cs hops of craft brewing Columbus Centennial and Cascade uh, it also has some lemongrass in it so I'm not sure what I'm gonna get this is a very clear cider it's a light pale gold let's have a have a have a whiff Can definitely smell apple and hops here. And a bit of the lemongrass. Smells kind of sweet. Smells a little piney. Okay, diving in. All right, now, you know, I have had hopped cider. I've had hopped mead. This does not taste as weird as either of those. This actually works. and The the, uh, description on the website says that the lemongrass kind of pulls it together. I think they may have something there. It's very light. It's on the sweeter side, but it's not what I would call a a really sweet cider. The herbal qualities of the hops and the lemongrass really make make for a a nice mouthful here. That's a summertime winner. So, back to the show. It is a cider episode, so I'm going to have more than one cider over the course of it. And that's good, because it's a much more varied drink than you may have thought about. Coming up, we're going to dig into that pretty deep with Ben Wank of Plowman Farm Cider. But let me tell you just how complicated it can be. I have a friend, another writer, who got a commission to write a book on cider. When he was about 40% through the project, he abandoned it and paid back the advance. What happened? I asked. I couldn't get anyone to agree on what cider was, he said, with some exasperation. Really? Isn't cider just fermented apple juice, like wine is fermented grape juice? Well, yes and no. For instance, is it cider if what you're fermenting is 51% tightly filtered pasteurized apple juice and 49% corn syrup solution? Is it cider if you use 100% apple juice, but it's filtered and you add sugar? What if you add other fruits than apples? Or what if you're using only familiar grocery store-type apples, what the trade calls culinary apples, and not traditional cider apples? Is it only cider if you use unfiltered juice pressed on-site from cider apples and fermented with naturally occurring yeast? These are the kinds of questions and passionate answers that drove my friend to drop the Cider Book Project. They are not the kinds of questions that I'm going to even try to address, so don't worry. I just wanted to let you know that cider can be every bit as complicated as wine or beer and stir people to just as much passion. A good place to start is this short interview I did with Jason Reese, the CEO at Windridge Farm in Dallastown, York County. Let's kick off with that and follow it up with a taste of Windridge Red White and Blueberry Cider. So I'm with uh, Jason Reese, you're the CEO of Windridge Farm, Windridge Cider.
1: Windridge Farm, Windridge Farm, which uh, we, we have Windridge Cider Company, um, our hard cider business, and we are home to Winding Path Brewing Company as well.
0: I wanted to ask you about uh, cider, particularly in York and Adams County. What is it about these, this area that makes it the heart of Pennsylvania's apple country?
1: Well, you know, you've got fantastic terroir where the, these apples can grow and flourish um, we are one of the largest uh, apple producers in the country um, and albeit the, the globe really when it comes to the production of, of apple apples. We, we have a fantastic set to choose from. Um, if you talk about York and Adams County, you know, there's a lot of growers that are now specifically growing what they know will be great cider apples. Um, as a secondary portion of their business. And so you know, this
0: is, it's not just culinary anymore.
1: It's not just culinary. It's not just apples that that head to the grocery store. That is a, a, a huge part. Wow. Of, of it, but sure. there's also the secondary market, which is which is us. Because you, you see those apples that you you get in the grocery store as you're shopping. Everybody wants that shiny, perfect, no blemish, no bruises, right? No dots or, or specks apple. But in in reality, there's a lot of apples that that. Don't make it through that that cut. Don't pass that. Pro- don't get through, through that process. Nothing wrong with them. And Just don't look we're, good. We're happy. Yeah, we're happy. Yeah. we're happy to be uh, to be there to, to pick up those others, those misfits, so to speak, um, and turn them into delicious hard cider because they're they're phenomenal for for that as well.
0: Great, great. How do you get started on something like that? What, I mean, you haven't been making cider forever.
1: No, we haven't been making cider forever. The business was was built on on cider. Our original cider. And then our core brands, our Black Cherry, our Cranberry, they have been around since day one. Um, Doctor, and day one was day roughly? Day one was roughly 2013. Okay. Or so September of 2013. Um, if you've ever been to our property out here on the farm, we've got an expansive 80 acres. It's absolutely beautiful, stunning. It, it really is, I mean, we're
0: here right now, yeah, and it's a gorgeous have, day. Got it's a amazing. Great,
1: a great day, 70 and sunny. There's, <laughs> there's no better day. So you guys got got that for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, the original cidery is still on property. It's a small garage-like space um, that, that looks like it's from the 19, you know, 20s or 30s. And and we did the cider out of that space originally in the, in the basement of that space in old dairy containers. Um, before the entirety of the rest of the farm was, was built. So that, that was kind of how it started. And, and, and really identifying that PA was a great place for apples was a, was a part of that. The, the agricultural business of apple farming in PA is pretty profound. It, it is a huge part of, of business in Pennsylvania. Agriculturally, it's a huge part of business. We're happy and proud to be a PA preferred brand. Nice. Um, we have that designation from uh, the PA Department of Agriculture. It's um, not an easy designation to to, uh, to get. Um, you've got to go through a process for that, and we're really proud to say that all of our cider is designated PA preferred. Dr. Groff, who is the founding member of, of Windridge Farm, was an orthopedic surgeon in the area, but he grew up in farm country in uh, in Lancaster, in Lancaster County, okay. he grew up a dairy a dairy farmer. His father was a dairy farmer, so he's always been really close to agriculture in, in Pennsylvania. Oh, that's cool. Um, and you know, it was only by accident that uh, he was hit uh, by a motor vehicle uh, in a crash and broke his spine, uh, and ended up in the same surgical room that that he practiced in as an orthopedic surgeon um, oh. to, to get fixed. And ultimately decided that he was going to move on from medicine and medical practice. Uh, and, you know, they, they owned the farm here, the 80 acres, and they lived on the property and started down the path of creating a business plan and, and building what you see today as, as Windridge Farm. So it's a, it's a really unique and, and interesting story.
0: Yeah, and speaking of, of what he's built here, I mean, if people come to visit, they're going to see this uh, gorgeous tap room and restaurant.
1: Yeah. Gorgeous tap room and restaurant. We, we like you mentioned at the, at the start, we do both beer and cider. We do it out of the same facility. We have an excellent team here that is able to craft a lot of different varieties. I mean, if you sit down at that bar and you're thinking you're only going to come here and be able to find hard cider, you're not a hard cider drinker, you're mistaken. We have a lot, a lot to offer. We've got over 20 taps. Um, any number of cans and and bottles that we might offer, a lot of seasonal offerings. And it's just um, Pennsylvania Spirits as well? Pennsylvania Spirits, yep. We're all PA Spirits. Very nice. Um, So we're very focused on the local and the the PA um, thing.
0: That's great. That's great. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for coming today. Thank you.
0: So another thing I'm drinking today is the red, white, and blueberry from Windridge Cider Company? They're in Dallas Town, Pennsylvania, in York County, and we're going to take a taste of this. This is a uh, a cider that is co-fermented with blueberries. They said uh, Windridge is a large operation, uh, relatively speaking. They don't grow all their own apples; they uh, they source them locally. Uh, not sure about the blueberries where they're coming from, but it is a, uh, a gorgeous reddish purple, so uh, not a whole lot of aroma. What's there is um, kind of like crushed blueberries, That uh, maybe a little bit of skin tartness. Mmm. I kind of like that blueberry feel. You know, I had a a blueberry cider I liked at 814 Cider outside of Belfont. I think uh, Shingletown they are. And this is... Kind of remind me of this. Uh, they let's say it's semi-sweet on the can, and it is not a bruisingly sweet cider. It has more body than some of Windridge's other ciders that I've had. I actually like this. I think the blueberry and the apple are making a good mix here. Mm, that's good. I have to be honest. I wasn't nuts about Windridge's original cider. It was kind of thin and sweet, and I mean, there's a place for that. Like over a glass of ice on a hot day, but I don't think it is a cider I would reach for. I would have more of this. This is not bad. So that's the Windridge Red White and Blueberry. Maybe a a July 4th sip. I did get a chance to try some of Windridge's other ciders when I was there and some of their Winding Path beers too. The New England Gale cider was a 9%er that was almost heavy and packed with flavor. You might want to pay them a visit, too, because the food was excellent. I left Windridge that day with the sun shining brightly and struck off into the countryside toward Adams County. I was headed to Plowman Cider, and they are deep in the hills. As I rolled down the roads, I realized that there were orchards everywhere. Adams County produces 70% of Pennsylvania's sizable apple harvest. There were hills covered with ranks of trees, some young saplings, some gnarled older producers. Trees surrounded houses. There were even small orchards right in the middle of towns, between two houses. What I didn't realize at the time was that some of those new trees were something very different. Traditional cider apples, not the Red Delicious and Honey Crisps that we're used to seeing. These were apples with names like Newtown Pippin, Brown Snout, and Foxwhelp. And they are not anything you'd want to eat. They can produce a cider that is much more like some of the more uncompromising craft beers, though. Challenging, complex, even bitter, and not at all like the sweet and semi-sweet ciders that make up the majority of ciders sold in America. I've seen what happens when people get one of these ciders, expecting a fun drink with the sweet or lightly tart flavor of familiar apples. It's like the bitter beer face in old Keystone Light commercials. There are clear differences between those sweet ciders and bitter tannic traditional ciders, and again among the ciders from the Spanish or Norman traditions. These differences have to be acknowledged and explained to the drinking public. They are no more or less real and definite than the differences between light beer and IPA, or between IPA and kettle sour beers with added fruit puree, or between Pinot Noir and the sweet wines that are so popular at Pennsylvania wineries. Uh, too much thinking. I need a drink. Another cider I have to drink today is Jack's Pressed On site Hard Cider Original. Jack's is produced by Atomic Dog in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And they do say all apples are pressed on site. Jack's in the glass is uh, a nice gold color. Looking at it against white, uh, there's actually some some depth to the gold there. It has a very crisp, uh, sharp aroma to it of of apples. Like when you bite into a a not overly sweet apple. Kind of like a Granny Smith. Let's try that. You know, it almost like it has a greenness to it. I would have to guess that these are culinary apples. I mean this is a it's not a sweet cider but it's a it's definitely a, a semi sweet. Uh, there's not much not much cling on the end of it, which is good. It breaks clean. There's a deeper tartness in the middle, which is kind of interesting. It's almost herbal, but it's uh, it's kind of welcome. That said, there's not a lot of challenge to this cider. This is a this is a fun cider, which God knows we need more fun in the world. I'm not sure I would call this a craft cider. Uh, this is a this is a six pack cider. Mm. Not bad for what it is. It is a uh, it's a can, five and a half percent. Okay, Jack's pressed on site, hard cider. Ben Wank at Plowman Farm Cider is all in on the traditional cider styles, particularly the English ciders. He steered his family in that direction about 10 years ago, and they embraced it. Plowman Ciders are sold in 40 states, and there are almost that many varieties of them. They have barrel-aged ciders, single-varietal ciders, I really enjoyed the stamen sap, a favorite crossover apple, and ciders that are aged upwards of five years. They do add fruit, but they're fruits like quince and chokeberries. They also do a hopped cider, like Big Hill, called Lummocks. They also make an apple and cherry-based vermouth called Plenum that I'm looking forward to trying in a Manhattan. They have a taproom in Gettysburg that I'd like to visit. The food and other drinks sound fantastic and include items sourced from friends of Ben's in Philadelphia, like Stargazy Pies and Human Robot Brewery. Ben has the passion of the true believer, but he also has the compassion of a true drinker and strong, century-long ties to Adams County. As he says in the interview, he wants the kids that went to Biglerville High, like him, to proudly say, yeah, we're from cider country, and have that be part of the identity of this part of central Pennsylvania. Let's listen to that. Hi, I'm here with uh, Ben Wink. You're the founder, owner, whatever, at uh, Plowman Farm Ciders. <laughs> That was the first thing I wanted to ask you. There's, I mean, it's just three words, but there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. So can you run through why you chose
2: each of those three words? That's a great question, actually. I'm, I'm not, I mean, certainly I, I do feel like a, you know, a partner in the business because we, you know, we do have our cider maker who's also a partner in the business. And I certainly am. Not capable of doing all these things myself, and so uh, we've got a great team of folks that are helping us in the cellar, helping us with you know the books, uh, helping us at our tap room in Gettysburg, and so and I don't I, you know it's it it's something that I that was kind of my enterprise to get started. Whenever we did get going back in well, when we were first commercial bottling would have been uh, December of 2016, but. You know, it took a it took a long time to get there as well, and yeah, I just I guess I haven't really settled on which one of those is most comfortable for me, honestly. Is the
0: plowman, and it's it's p l o u g h. Yeah, plowman. Is that a is that like a direct? This is English cider.
2: Um, not really. It's it's uh, a couple things that I liked about it, and and you know it was a very circuitous route to get to that name. There was a whole bunch of different ideas and things that got blown up by other national brands, and uh, along the way. But oh, we finally, okay. We finally settled on on Plowman. I liked it because it tied us to the land mm-hmm. first and foremost. Yeah, it because, really does, because that is at the end of the day our our kind of guiding light, our true north, is to make sure that we are representing, you know, the soils under the apple trees and the the high quality of fruit that we're able to grow here in Adams County. So that is uh, at first glance what our mission here is, is to, you know, provide all that flavor when the apple's on the tree and let the, the tree and the soils do the work. So we like that part of it. And certainly as I was kind of discovering Cider's uh, immediately after I started doing farmer's markets coming out of college, like I was very quickly drawn to some of those British styles that I was able to find, which were hard to find in Pennsylvania. I had to really go far afield to, to really kind of explore some of those things. But um, there was just something about those that really did kind of appeal to me. And, and also a plowman essentially being kind of a word that represents, you know, a field worker in, in those countries. Like I wanted to make sure that it was a product that – you know, had some refinement. It had that good representation of the apples in the soil, but it was also still approachable. And it was something that anybody who might just, you know, be getting off of work would just come home and crack crack one open and, and enjoy without feeling like it's, you know, f- special occasion cider. Had to like fancy that. it up somehow. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So, okay. Your family's been growing apples here for two hundred years.
0: Is that right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So um, the apples really in earnest since, uh, about 1963, 64 as the main focus of okay. what we do here on the farm. And we do have, you know, family history that apples were a part of a for-profit part of the farm going back closer to the turn of the century. But yeah, a, a total of, uh, yeah, we, we came here to the United States from Switzerland in 1818, all of about a half a mile in 200 years from, the top of that hill to where we're currently sitting now ah, so
0: and that was actually something i wanted to talk about i mean obviously this is audio and i'll have a couple of pictures to show people uh on the instagram account uh at stag podcast i mean i'm looking out the window behind you and we all i see is trees clinging to the sides of hills and all the way in here i, I mentioned to you it looked kind of like the finger lakes with with vineyards every place there's i mean i saw little plots of trees in towns which i guess just meant those are good trees so we're not going to cut them
2: down <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. well and and you what, know what is it about this place yeah that's uh that exactly what is, i was here this to is talk the heart about of pennsylvania's apple country right yeah These two counties right so adams county is responsible for 70 percent, approximately oh, wow. of the okay. state's production okay uh, all so just, york is kind of hanging
0: in on the coattails
2: well, yeah. I mean, there's still great growers over sure. in New York County and, you know, friends of mine in Berks and some great orchards in western Pennsylvania. I mean, they're, they're, we've got a, a great culture around apples here in Pennsylvania that, that isn't defined solely by Adams County. But this is the largest concentration yeah. based on a few factors. Uh, certainly one is uh, the soils are, are highly adaptable and well-suited to uh, tree fruit agriculture, which would is to say that they're deep, well-drained soils have a great parent material, you know, they're able to give lots of micronutrients, plant available water, all the things that uh, an apple tree wants. Uh, They're easily accessible with these soils that we've been, you know, not just us here at, at Three Springs Fruit Farm and Plowman, but, you know, all of the fruit growers have just done a great job of, preserving those soils and, 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 you know, because it is a perennial cropping system, like cultivating them over time and improving them. So that is a big part of it. Uh, the second is those hillsides that you reference, and this is especially important as, you know, we're, we're sitting here, like as the bloom season is starting in Adams County, all those hillsides provide air drainage. So it is like the finger legs. Yes. I'll be dead. Yeah. Okay. So the air drainage is really important as we're getting closer to bloom time because, you know, generally we're planting on those hillsides and not in the creek bottoms, and so when that air is the coldest, that's going to be sinking down to the bottoms of the hills where the the trees aren't planted, mm-hmm. and uh, then you know that that cold air starts filling up like a vase in those valleys, and typically, knock on wood. By the time it's the coldest and and the the sun is just cresting the horizon, you know before that cold air would really affect the blossoms that that sun is going to come up break the convection and mm-hmm. and you know it starts warming up and and generally speaking, there's been years that the East Coast would have uh, massive crop losses due to frost and Adams County generally, you know, we don't want to talk about being frost free because yeah, that's right. that's asking for trouble, right? <laughs> uh, but you know, it, it, the air drainage is really helpful in terms of making sure that we have a regular crop of apples, especially in some degree peaches and stone fruit as well, which is a little bit more volatile in terms of frost and oh. stuff like that. Oh, okay.
0: And and we were just talking earlier something I didn't know really, the the apples bloom later than those other ones? Yeah,
2: yeah. That's um, part of the reason that, you know, we we have more frost losses. The primary reason that we have more frost losses in things like apricots and plums is simply because they're blooming earlier Earlier. when we're likely to have that cold, killing frost. And so, yeah, it starts with those types of stone fruits and then cherries and then peaches and eventually the apples open up. And at that time, we're very hopeful that the the temperatures (laughs) are, yeah, suitable, (laughs) so
0: what is it about cider that makes i got to say more than whiskey or wine well maybe not wine but close there's just so much I, I don't disagreement argument about what is and what isn't and what's good and what isn't and is it is it ill-defined is it more because there are more than one there it seems there seem to be some very different traditions in cider
2: yes and i think Ill-defined is a great place to start because at least, and this is, uh, you know, speaking mostly from my experience in Pennsylvania, you know, at least kind of in a legislative way, it was very improperly legislated to almost like, like not legislated for a long time in the state of Pennsylvania where, you know, like the ciders had to be below 5.5% to be able to be sold through the three-tier system. Right. We worked with the Pennsylvania cider Guild, which I'm still a member of to to make a definition of cider to actually get it defined in the liquor code so that we could start writing uh, legislature specific to cider. Uh-huh. So that was like the first step is it literally did not it was not defined in the liquor code. And so just the way that planned out, or the way it worked out, I guess you would say, is it ended up being defined within you know the the brewed and malted beverages part of the liquor code, which, is more of a acknowledgement maybe of how that beverage is typically consumed and sold in Pennsylvania, whereas it is neither brewed nor balted. So, you know, so it's like, I think, uh, you know, ever since cider has come back as category of beverages that people are looking for, which you'd have to go back probably to Woodchuck to really start that revival. But ever since that thing has come back, it's like this kind of tug of war where you know, our whole goal and my whole way of thinking about cider is to have it be its own thing. Mm-hmm. Like it, cider, right? You, like if we continue to talk about it like, well, it's made like wine and sold like beer, it allows it to just be kind of a ping pong ball. It's batted back and forth yeah. between both things when it's really neither. So we've always tried to concentrate on, you know, cider is cider. You know, I have some some opinions about some of the other Things that happen with cider that, you know, are a little bit more problematic. But at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do is we want people to acknowledge that cider is cider. Yeah. Know how it's made. Know it's not brewed, but know that it is its own thing. And there's no such thing as cider beer and cider wine. There is cider and only ah, cider. Right. And, you know, within that category, just like you would have with beers, you know, you don't sell stout the same way as you sell pilsner. You know, they're, they're two very different kinds of drinks that have that make more sense in different situations depending on what you're doing at that time or what you're eating or anything like that and you know within cider you have the same thing you know you have ciders that are higher abv that have a little bit more richness a little bit more you know elegance or refined characteristics and you have some that just like i don't, I don't really want to like concentrate and unpack the ciders want to crack it open and have one and have one, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Get yeah. off the lawnmower and just crack a cider and have it. <laughs> you know, so like it has it has the ability to do all these different things, but I think people are just starting to discover that.
0: Well, that's what we. I was doing this episode of What's Brewing with Glenn Macknow this afternoon, and that was one of the things we talked about. That you know, a lot of these ciders, I guess we're we're just cracking open craft cider, yeah. and like craft beer and like craft spirits. There's a lot of education to be done. Yes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> a lot. Oh, my God. If only we had video and we could get the look on your face <laughs> on that one. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah. and that's I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm doing this episode. I need to learn this stuff. It's sure. It's a whole other complicated issue. Because like you said, it's not wine. It's not beer. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So your ciders, well, one thing, you sent me some samples. And one of the things I noticed right away, you had the... Um, The sweet and dry meter on the back of them, and all of them were jammed all the way over to the right on dry, and they were, and I've had three of them so far. Mm -hmm. Um, I had the wine sap, I had the Arkansas black, and I had the, what is it, Dabinette?
2: Dabinette Roxbury. Yes, that's
0: it. Um, And, I mean, three completely different ciders. Yes. Really different. All of them dry. The Arkansas black, I think, was probably the
2: most, what, conventionally apple-y. Yeah, yeah. That's, How does that work? So, I mean, and and that's one of my favorite things is is sending people ciders like the three you mentioned, which are, you know, just changing the apple varieties. And, yeah, and, and, yeah, that's, that's all the change, right? Yeah, I mean, there are some other nuances. So the Arkansas black is a pet nat, so that's okay. going to be a younger cider. That's not going to be one that we're uh, maturing for months and months and months before bottling, which is true of the rest of our ciders. Okay. I mean, most of our ciders are you know, eight to 12 months in terms of maturation, or like from beginning to finish. Now is, that's, that,
0: is that in wood or tank or combination? It, combination. So okay. the,
2: the stamen wine sap, uh, that's going to be, you know, tank, no oak. And then the, the Davinette Roxbury had some oakiness from a barrel that we were yeah. aging that in. So, yeah, like, and that, so that's, that's one of the things we're really, really excited about is kind of showing the versatility of apples through three ciders like that. Completely different. So, yeah, the Arkansas Black, you get that that more traditionally apple upfront fruitiness. fruitiness. Uh, you know, a younger cider that's like also a natural bubble on it. It's kind of like, I think of it as like, you know, kind of fun, brunchy cider.
0: I have to admit, I drank it faster than I drank the others. Yeah. I, I mean, I drank all of them and I enjoyed them, but
2: that one went a little faster. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's you know, very common of uh, a lot of ciders that you would see in the marketplace that has a little bit more fruity nose to it. And you know, then the 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 stamen wine sap is actually our bestseller, and it's a wild fermented cider. So it's wow. just completely spontaneously fermented. It's an apple that grows really well around here, and you know that one. I find that like it has enough farmhouse characteristics that like a cider nerd who's way into cider can like appreciate it for what it is. But it's also not so much that it's not approachable to somebody who might be coming from a more six pack cider background. Yeah. And yeah, then the the Roxbury is it's it's essentially uh, very bold in every possible direction in a way that we're hoping to like you know if it's going to be high acidity, high tannins, high barrel, and high aromatics that it somehow balances all four of those asserted asserted it, things.
0: It drew me up a bit. I had to <laughs> I had to step back and think about that one.
2: Yeah. And, yeah. And that's and that's a fun thing to have too because you know. Like sometimes it can be harder to to pair a cider with something like you know steak or something like that. But when you have something that's you know really bright, yeah, yeah, it's 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 definitely it it kind of demands a level of attention that a lot of other ciders don't, especially in our (laughs) in our lineup at least. So and that's one of the reasons we like it because we can swing wildly from young Arkansas black. Easy to just knock them back and, and pair it with a wide range of food. And then something like the the dabinet, which I believe I got the chance to pair that with, I think it was goose that we paired it with at, oh, wow. the, at the Elwood dinner. And like, it was, it was perfect because it had, had that fruitiness and it had the smokiness to go with like some of the charred bits of that goose that mm-hmm. we were served. And yeah, so you, it finds its spots pretty well. I mean, we just named, what, four different apples. Yeah.
0: Have you been growing, well, I should say at Three Springs, have those apples, kind of apples been grown all along, or is it a fairly new thing?
2: It's a new thing, and I'll give Steve Wood some credit. Steve Wood um, owns Farnham Hillsiders up in Vermont. Oh, yeah. And I was watching the Botany of Desire documentary on PBS. I just read the book Mm -hmm. by Michael Pollan. It's a great book. And... I had just written the whole business plan for Plowman. Oh, wow. I was thinking, wow. You know, I was, I, I, I was like, you know, super proud of myself. I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to take this business plan. I'm going to pitch my father and uncle, and we're going to get this thing started. And Steve Wood comes on the television, Botany Desire, and says, you know, cider, hard cider is not a value-added product. And I'm just like, what? Whoa, okay. <laughs> all right. Um, and then, of, of course, uh, as he's talking and explaining it, I'm learning the fact that he's right. Oh, wow. Because, you know, if you're going to make the best cider that you can, like, you can make good cider from a lot of different kinds of apples. But it is my opinion and Steve's opinion as well that the best ciders will be made from uh, apples that are cider-specific varieties. Okay. And so these, uh, the same way people think about wine grapes and stuff like that, you know, there, there exist these apples that are bittersweet and bitter sharp in character that you can't, Nobody's going to pick
0: one up and eat it. Yeah,
2: you're not going to snack on it. You can't make pie. You can't make apple butter. All the things you can do with apples, um, these are like unit taskers, right? They are to <laughs> turn into alcohol and nothing else. Right. And by the time you have an apple that's a single-use apple, then it can't be value-added because there are no multiple uses. Yeah. There is turning it into alcohol, and that's it. And so I completely redid my business plan, and we ordered the trees to start growing some of the varieties like Roxbury Russet, mm-hmm. Dabinet, Wixen, some of the things you see in some of our larger format cider bottles typically are, are the ones that we planted exclusively for this project. And so now those trees are finally starting to mature after all this time, and uh, we're, we're able to harvest more of those fruit and, and, and make that a bigger part of the cider we're making here at Plowman. Mm-hmm. How, how long does that take oh it depends on the rootstock oh same as uh, a lot of horticultural crops commercial apple trees same as commercial uh vines in a, in a vineyard are going to be grafted so you're going to have uh the scion which is the variety that you know and are intending to plant and that's going to be grafted to the rootstock which is typically a variety of apple that has like a very boring combination of letters and numbers that dictate different characteristics to the scion. So the kind of overall movement within horticulture and and tree fruit agriculture is to move towards more dwarfing rootstocks because those trees will come into bearing earlier. They can be easier to manage in terms of making them more efficient and, and is, grow. is this why so many of the trees i saw on the way in here really looked kind of more like thick bushes well so those with the the thicker ones are going to be like the older style of trees the, the oh oh the semi-dwarf so okay you can actually kind of see an example of both right out the window if you look out that window beside uh the house i'm living in is a block of gold rush trees that are on a dwarfing M9 rootstock, and that requires a trellis ah, to support the tree. I did see some of those. Okay. Yeah, and so then you're able to plant more trees per acre. You plant them closer together, and they, you know, you're know, you investing a lot more money up front, but because of the precocity of getting those trees into bearing sooner, mm. you're able to recoup that investment a lot well, faster. Well, they look like they might be easier to pick, too. Yeah, oh, okay. for sure, All for right. sure. And uh, so, conversely, like kind of over my shoulder here uh-huh. is uh, a block of semi dwarfing trees. Those are mostly ginger gold on M twenty six, or I believe it might be a Cornell equivalent uh, Geneva forty one, maybe. Uh, which uh, yeah, Cornell's uh, invested in a lot of uh, more disease resistant root stocks, and so um, you know those trees are going to be more of your classic Christmas tree shape. And they're going to have a single post Mm -hmm. trained to that post. And they're going to be a much more three-dimensional tree architecture. Whereas a lot of... uh, And the science has shown that like, you know... Sunlight is limiting at about like a foot and a half. So that's why modern dwarfing apple trees. Oh, oh a foot and a half like into the tr- into the leaf cover? Right. So, okay. yeah. So, you know, a, a fully dwarfing uh, trellised orchard system is going to try to make sure those trees are so compact huh. that, that sunlight is no longer limiting. So okay. it's going to be more like two and a half feet maybe in terms of uh, the longest limbs. And that's it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and this is
2: uh, genetic engineering or is this just... Plain old breeding, right? No, this is classical plant breeding. Okay, yeah, and that's the same for the the rootstocks. That's the same for the the new varieties that you might see in a grocery store. Those are all made by classical plant breeding crosses, Mendelian genetics. So, okay, old school genetic yes. engineering. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, choosing the ones you like and, and, <laughs> and encouraging. And, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: We talked earlier about different types of cider, like different cultural types of cider. I mean, I'm familiar with Spanish, French, English. You seem to have picked English. Is that just? Is there a reason for that other than just personal
2: preference? Yeah, you know, I think I, I I definitely enjoy French ciders and Spanish ciders, but they are just they're they're they feel like a little bit more unique to those areas. Okay, and to be fair, like you know, the British cider is as well, and having visited there, like. You know, what they're able to do, and a lot of my favorite producers are varieties that date back hundreds of years for that area, for that climate, mm-hmm. and no pitchy, so spontaneous fermentation. Okay. And in their case, like at ambient temperatures too, like they don't have to do any temperature control, oh. and it feels like this perfect hand in glove fit, right? For a lot of those ciders, you know, it's to me, those are great expressions of apples without as much of production decisions interfere not interfering I don't want to put it that way but you know for example like french cider is going to be typically well they're they're known for keeve ciders which maintain a little bit of residual sweetness and are very bubbly usually champagne method and there's a place for that but like it's there's not as much variation like they can uh. You know, well, that's not true. I'm I'm struggling (laughs) to put into words what really drew me. And, you know, perhaps it was just the first ones that I discovered. Okay. You know, perhaps, because I, I, you know, like if I would have had a DuPont Normandy cider before I'd had... Oh, what were some of the ones that I'd, I'd been, I had been... I had to go down to Max's Tap House in Fells Point to find these ciders yes. back in, in the early 2000s because they weren't available anywhere that I could find in, in, yeah. in Pennsylvania. Certainly not in rural central Pennsylvania where I was you know, living and continue to be. So maybe it was just the, the fact that that was the first ciders that really kind of like got my attention. Yeah, I think that's probably a, a, a more likely explanation as to why we are kind of pulled in that direction but you know ultimately like that's where our inspiration is from but you know our real desires to make not only american cider Mm -hmm. not only pennsylvania cider but specific to this region to adams county and the south mountain you know we're way more interested in learning how to define to define that cider a south mountain cider or an adams county cider more so than trying to do our riff on a traditional British style. Mm -hmm. Like we can pay homage to the ciders that inspired us to start this whole endeavor, but the really exciting thing, and this is goes back to like the first time we used ambient yeast from our orchard. Like, you know, we've been growing apples in Adams County for, you know, how long now? It's 150 years as a commercial industry. And those wild yeast have been co-evolving on the apples all this time. And it was right. like this untapped resource. And like, when we finally got to make a, a wild fermented cider. That was where like, I really started thinking, oh, we're going to start figuring out what an Adams County or what a South Mountain cider is, mm-hmm. because it's going to be something that can't be recreated anywhere else because we're going to use our own fruit and we're going to use the, the native fauna of the area to really kind of build that terroir kind of thing into the ciders that are going to define this area. And, and are people responding to that? Yes. Yes. It's, it's, you know, been a gradual thing. Like you said, education. Oh, the education yeah. part is so important, but that's, you know, I'm very fortunate to not only have the agricultural heritage on uh, my dad's side, but my mom's side of the family is, is all educators. Oh, And so when I get the chance to kind of bring both of those things together it's a real it's a real happy place for me to hang out. So like we've gone out of our way to to especially at our tap room in Gettysburg to like make sure that you know our staff is is educated and trained on ciders as a whole, our ciders specifically, and what makes those products unique. And and you know really trying to build a little bit of civic pride in this area as, you know, the kids that went to Bigglerville like me can like proudly say, well yeah, we're from cider country, you know, and and have that be you know, part of the identity of uh, this part of central Pennsylvania. You mentioned the tap room in Gettysburg. Tell me more about that. Sure. That was something that we were very fortunate to uh, have the opportunity to, to occupy that space. It's right on the square. It's 14 oh, wow. Lincoln square. Yeah. It was an opportunity that that just happened our way that we decided to take advantage of. And we opened, when we started doing some pop-ups uh, the summer of 2019 uh, leading to a kind of more grand opening where things were kind of in place by fall of 2019, and then, of course, as first year bar owners got got to, got to <laughs> <laughs> learn a lot of things uh, in a very short amount of time. Uh, shortly after that, so. Um, but we've emerged on the other side and in a really, really good place. Just did a little remodel there. We have a little kitchen that we can serve some Plowman's lunches, for example, as you might suspect, I saw that. and, yeah. and uh, <laughs> a, a lot of other really good food that I've kind of, you know, the whole and the whole Plowman cider thing was really born out of farmers markets. Okay, because you know, that was we got. I came back from college. We started farmers markets. Even the first year that we went to farmer's markets, my dad and I got done with the market. We decided to go to the Dark Horse Tavern, as it was at the time, which is right there in Old City on 2nd Street, right behind our market stand. It used to be the Dickens Inn way back in the day. Oh, okay. And that was the first time I had a Strongbow. And I had never had a cider that wasn't Woodchuck. A lot of people like Woodchuck, and I'm not—it's just stylistically, that was too sweet for me. Right. I tried the Strongbow. I'm like, oh. (laughs) That's a little different. Okay. All right. So I can, you know— and that really is where the whole thing started. And then building a like a network of chefs that we were working with on the farm side. And then by the time we decided to have a, a cider company, like I had a, a couple contacts. that mm-hmm. I felt that would would be helpful in getting the business started. So, and along with that experience at farmers markets, we were able to like pull in some really great food from some of my favorite people in Philadelphia to serve at the tap room. So we're serving stargazy pies for my buddy Sam. And uh, my mom's, uh pierogi, which are saw that, yep, oh, uh, they're incredible. So um, well, I
0: also saw. I have to. Say, I have to put the plug in. I also saw the human robot cans. Yes, the beers. Love that. My son bought a house a block and a half from there, and I'm oh. just very ah. happy about that.
2: <laughs> nice and and the great folks, great beer, yeah. and yeah, and we, we have a great relationship with those folks, and yeah. And that's the other fun thing is, you know, as we're going out selling our cider, we're able to make some relationship with with some really great breweries and you know, we bring in beer from Philadelphia, Ambler stunned to
0: stunned at the array of beers you have. Yeah, yeah. Pittsburgh yeah.
2: our Very friends, cool at, stuff. friends at friends uh, at Cinderland's, they they're commonly featured on on draft as well. And of course, some some friends of ours in Central Pennsylvania as well. Mm-hmm. So Say people came down to
0: Adams County during apple harvest. Are they going to see? I don't know anything special. Are there well, events? Or is there? Oh yeah. Okay. So
2: we have the National Apple Harvest Festival right here. <laughs> okay. In in Orangeville, uh, uh, which is just down the mountain from where we're sitting here at Three okay. Springs, and that's uh, consistently the first two weekends in October. And it draws large crowds from all over and um, really well run event. You know, it's a a little bit like kind of, you know, that Bubba Gump shrimp thing of apples. Like you can get apple pretty much anything (laughs) there, which is really fun. You know, and and we do have uh, our local cider makers, us and Big Hill and Reed's and a few others that, that set up and sell cider and you can walk around with a beverage and enjoy the f- the festival grounds and awesome. and find some great food from a number of local uh, charity organizations that count on those those weekends sure. for the majority of their fundraising which is a nice nice part of it as well so yeah, those first two weekends in October are always great times to visit, and you know certainly make sure that you know you're going out and visiting Big Hill Cider Works. You know they have their own tap room in, in Northern Adams County. Thirsty Farmer Brew Works out close to the round, the Round Barn in Orangeville. Reeds, yeah, it's 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 a fun time to be visiting Adams County, and you know we always plan special things at the tap room as well for those big weekends. We have a couple extra folks sure, in in, sure. in town, so nice. That's
0: about all I have. And I mean, I thought, I've been, we covered some good stuff here. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, any time we can nerd out on apples and science and, <laughs> and and cider and things like that, that's that's always a good you know, day for me. I do me.
0: worry sometimes that, we're, uh, that I'm, I'm going too far into the geek on this podcast sometimes, but I haven't gotten any pushback on that, so... No, I, I've learned a
2: lot myself. Okay. Like, that's one of the things I look forward to when I'm listening to it, for <laughs> sure. Like, that's... Any day you can learn something's a good day.
0: Yeah. So. All right. Well, Ben, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And I, I mean, just driving around here has been educational.
2: Yeah. And it's a beautiful time now to visit us as well. As the bloom starts coming out, it's a its a pretty time oh, yeah. in Adams County. so. All right, man. Thank you. You bet. Cheers.
0: Farm Cider does have a long history in Pennsylvania. And cider-making has had an effect on Pennsylvania infrastructure. I'm talking about covered bridges, the wooden bridges that can still be found on back roads, over-country streams, and small rivers. Back in the 1800s, a farmer who had prospered a bit might build a mill, or a distillery, or cider press. He'd mill or distill or press his own produce, grain or apples, and other farmers would bring their produce to him, and he'd process it, usually for a cut of the product some sacks of flour, a jug of white lightning, a barrel of cider. A mill or press would be powered by a water wheel, a distillery would need a source of cooling water, so they were built by creeks, often with a dam or weir to build up a head of water. That meant a barrier to farmers on the other side, so the miller, distiller, or cider presser farmer would often build a covered bridge to encourage trade. Everyone in the area would travel that bridge and press their apples there. I'm fascinated by these bridges. Pennsylvania has 212 covered bridges, more than any other state in America, more than almost any other country in the world, if we're talking about timber bridges. I've been to some of those, too. I've even walked the Kappelbrücke in Luzern, Switzerland, the oldest wooden truss bridge in the world. I'm trying to visit and photograph every remaining covered bridge in Pennsylvania. It can be sad. The bridges are often over 100 years old, but at the same time, they're fragile. At least three have been lost to fire or flood since I started my quest in 2020, one I had already visited, but the others I had not. Some have been restored, many of them have been repaired or rebuilt at some point in their lifetime, often more than once, and there are even a few new ones. I've learned a lot about the bridges as I've visited them, how they're built, why they've survived so long, and yes, why are they covered? That's the question I hear the most whenever I mention my hobby. It's a pretty simple question, and a pretty simple answer. They're wooden, so the angled roof and wooden sides keep the rain and snow off the wooden deck and truss framework of the bridge. That means they stay relatively dry, and so they last much longer than an uncovered bridge. There is an uncovered wooden truss bridge in Bucks County, a rare type known as a pony bridge, with a wooden deck and box-like wooden covering over the truss work, but no overhead roof. I visited there during the big cicada hatch in June of 2021, and while dodging the big dumb bugs, it was clear that the wooden deck was rotting, at a rate I haven't seen on any other covered bridge. Covering works. There are some great covered bridges in central Pennsylvania, including an amazing cluster of ten in Perry County, all within 20 miles that you can easily visit within an hour. Sadly, there are only nine now, since the Wagoner's Mill Bridge burned in 2021. That's the one I did get to see. Not far from there is the longest covered bridge in Pennsylvania, the Pomeroy Academia Bridge. You can't drive on it anymore. About a third of the bridges no longer allow motor traffic, but you can walk all 270 feet of it. Most of the covered bridges in Pennsylvania are under 100 feet long. This one's a beauty. That's what I've come to appreciate the most about covered bridges. Some of the drivable ones, like the Hassenplug Bridge in Mifflinburg, or the Factory Bridge just south of Allenwood, are in daily use, and getting a picture of them can be challenging because of the traffic. But many are tucked away, often on a lane called Covered Bridge Road, down in a quiet valley, over a chuckling brook. And just getting to them and stopping to really see them is a peaceful moment in my day. There's even one in Philadelphia, the only one left in a major U.S. city, the Thomas Mill Bridge. You can only reach it by the unpaved lane known as Forbidden Drive deep in the woods of the Wissahickon Valley Park. No cars are allowed on Forbidden Drive. I rode my bike there in June of 2021. Kathy and I went bridge hunting on my birthday that year. It had snowed, and we were across the Susquehanna in Columbia County. We drove back Huntington Creek on a small two-lane named Winding Road and came to one of the high points of Pennsylvania-covered bridge hunting, the Twin Padden Bridges, two short, separate bridges spanning the creek anchored by a stone piling in the middle. The paddens are in beautiful condition, in classic red with white trim, but are no longer drivable. The county has created the small twin bridges park around them. It was a gray day, with a little snow still sifting out of the sky as we pulled off the road into the small lot. We got out of the car, and for 10 minutes, the only sounds were the creak, a crow, and the sounds we made as we waded through the snow. It was a peaceful moment, like many other covered bridge moments, that I go back to in my mind quite often. As the psalmist said, it refreshes my soul. I have two lists of Pennsylvania covered bridges in Google Maps for the ones I've seen and the ones I have yet to see. I may merge them and make it public. Let me know if you're interested. Hey, I mentioned at the start of the show that there'd be a taste of stag on the road. This past weekend, we went down to Philly to visit our son Tom and his partner, Sade. We got in around two, did some stuff, and then went out. We went to Chew Fishtown, that's C-H-E-U, because I'd been wanting to check out Chew's highball machine. If you're not familiar, a highball is a glass of ice, whiskey, and a mixer, classically carbonated water or seltzer. I love them in the summer. They're a great straddler between the flavor of whiskey and the cold drinkability of beer. The Japanese also love them, and they've created a highball dispensing machine that carbonates water and mixes it with whiskey, chills it, and dispenses it through a tap. And Chu has what I believe is the only one of these in Pennsylvania. Chu is a Japanese noodle bar, and the food was tempting, but we had other plans, so the four of us sat at the bar and got highballs. Well, three of us got highballs. Sade got one of Chu's mocktails and added a shot to it. She goes her own way. There were four varieties of the highball, straight with a twist, with yuzu, cucumber and dill, with honey, ginger and a spritz of peaty scotch, and with a verna, a Sicilian bitter liqueur, and luxardo. The straight was cold, crisp and refreshing, made me wish it was a summer day. The cucumber and yuzu balanced in a smooth, sharp tension with the dill sliding in creamily on the finish. The honey ginger one was a blast thanks to that tingly smoke of the scotch. We didn't get to the fourth one. Next time. We also went to Human Robot Brewing, but I'm going to save that for a Philly episode. It deserves it, and I'm hoping to get an interview with founder Ken Carell. What I will tell you about is Gilda, the Portuguese-inspired cafe on Girard Avenue we went to for breakfast before leaving on Monday. Tom recommended Gilda, which is spelled G-I-L-D-A, and told us to get this pastry that they always run out of. It's phenomenal. And the Antonio, a breakfast sandwich. Armed with that loose information, I deftly paralleled the Subaru into a nearby parking spot, and we entered. They had not run out of the pastry, which turned out to be the classic Portuguese bastes de nata, a cinnamon-flavored egg custard in a phyllo cup. They were broiled brown on top, and the phyllo was explosively crisp. The custard was rich, warm, and delicately spiced with cinnamon, easily one of the very best pastries I've ever had. The Antonio was a lightly toasted Portuguese roll, crusty on the outside, light on the inside, with a fried egg and cheese, a warmly spicy linguiça patty, and breakfast sauce, which had some heat and savor that I know I want more of. We each got a pastry and a sandwich, and didn't feel stuffed, but we also didn't need anything else to eat for about eight hours. (laughs) Definitely looking forward to a return engagement, and maybe a quick interview with the owners to find out more about that breakfast sauce. More Philly, more New York, more Carolina to come in the next six months. But still plenty of central Pennsylvania. I promise. By the way, speaking of Philly, the reason I wound up in Adams County, the reason I did a cider episode now, was another appearance on What's Brewing in PA with Glenn MacNeil, a web-based beer show. Glenn's a Philadelphia sports radio host on WIP, but he's also a beer fan and a partner in Conshohocken Brewing. I co-host the show with him twice a month. Google What's Brewing PA and click on the YouTube link that comes up. You'll see my appearances in the seventh season episodes, bringing Central PA beers to the table. Glenn compared it to sports radio. He's the color. I'm the play-by-play guy. It's a good time. That's the show. Thanks to Ben Wank at Plowman and Jason Reese at Windridge for the interviews and the samples. Thanks to the folks at Atomic Dog for the Jack sample. And again, thanks to all of you for supporting the podcast. Please tell your friends. You can find pictures of cider and orchards and Ben Wank on Instagram at Stag Podcast and on Facebook at Seen Through a Glass, where you'll also find links to the ciders I talked about and ways to contact me. Scene Through a Glass is edited by a three-year-old Lhasa Apso, named Boodles. I have a coffee button set up at the Scene Through a Glass blog, that's Bryson.blogspot.com and in my Instagram link tree. If you like the show, it's a way you can drop me a few bucks to help pay for tips for bartenders, gas for the Subaru, and the occasional beer. If that works, we won't have to go to advertising to keep this alive. Thanks! The next episode? Again, I have no idea. I got an episode ahead and then things with nuts, and once again, I'm flying by the seat of my pants. Feel free to let me know what you'd like to see. Someone did suggest Huntington, but I already have that scheduled for the fall for my own reasons. We'll see what happens in two weeks. Thanks for listening. And until next time, this is Lou Bryson on Scene Through a Glass from the smack dab center of the Keystone State.